by opening to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read the first eight verses, verses 1 to 8. Today's sermon is entitled, Objection. Objection. Romans chapter 3, and if you have found that, would you stand with me? Beginning at verse 1, here are some questions that are coming up, and Paul is going to recognize them and answer them. Beginning at verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. All right, thank you. Amen. You may be seated. Objection. Some years ago, I had to take a trip to Jakarta, and I got on the plane, uh, Garuda Airlines here in Samarang, and, and normally when I get onto a plane, especially if I'm by myself and I know I'm going to sit next to strangers, Normally, I am hoping that we don't have to talk to each other on the way to our destination. And I don't know why that is. I, sometimes I feel uncomfortable talking to the person next to me. Because if I start talking with them, you never know. What if they're weird? What if they're really strange? What if they don't know how to be quiet? Or what if they think I'm strange and I don't know how to be quiet? And so I just prefer to just remain to myself and, and everybody kind of mind their own business on the plane. Well, that one trip I was taking to Jakarta, was getting on the plane, sitting in the front row, and the man who sat next to me, just as we're about to take off, he said, so what's your name? I thought, oh, here we go. We haven't even started flying yet, and he's already talking to me. So I said, my name is Heath, and I asked his name, and we kind of made greetings and things like that. And then he asked, what are you doing here in Indonesia? I guess he figured I wasn't born in Indonesia. And I got to tell him, I, I pastor a church here, that I, I felt called for the ministry and I felt called to go to Indonesia to pastor at an international church and that's what I do in Samarang. And I asked him about his life and he said, well, I'm a Muslim. I come from a Muslim family and, and in fact, my father is a leader in the uh, Islamic com community in California and I have a brother who's also a leader in his community for Muslims in the area of the United States where he's from as well. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And for the rest of the 45 minutes to Jakarta, he asked me question after question after question. And there were sincere questions about what I believe. What is it that I teach? Why do I believe these things? And what is it about Jesus that makes him different than other prophets? Wonderful questions. 
And I had the opportunity to tell him about my belief that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, that he died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, that through him we can have peace with God, and that God raised him from the dead. He lives forevermore, and he is the living Savior for all who will believe. That's what I believe. That's what I teach. And of course, I asked him a little bit about his faith as well. Wonderful conversation. And when we finally landed, getting off the plane, going to our baggage, you know, counter and things like that, we sort of separated from each other. But later on, I saw him down the terminal and I just ran. I, I wanted to say one more thing to him. I caught up to him and I said, listen, I, I just want to say one more thing. The Bible promises, God promises in the Bible that if you will seek him with all your heart, he will be find, found by you. You will find him. If you are sincere about finding the truth of God, he will make himself known to you. And I just said, I just want to encourage you with that. Remember what we talked about and remember that for a day to come. Now, I don't know how many of you have had that kind of conversation with someone. I hope you have. I hope that we have many opportunities of having such conversations with people. But you know, there are some people who will ask you questions about your faith, about your Christian life, about your church, about what you believe, and they'll ask it with a sincere heart. They really want to know. I found that this man, coming from a Muslim background, he basically knew nothing about what Christians believe. So I felt that it was a wonderful honor to tell him. At the same time, you'll have other people ask you questions, and they don't care about your answers. Other people will ask you questions just to find a way to mock you for what you believe. They're not interested in what you have to say. They're not interested in the truth. They want to find a way to insult you, to mock you, to laugh at you or embarrass you in front of other people. And they'll say things like, well, what about this? What about that? And if they get you confused with your answer, you're done. And everybody wants to laugh at you. You know, they did the same thing to Jesus. When Jesus taught, there were many who objected to what he said. And they asked him questions. Not because they wanted to learn, but because they wanted to trap him. To make him look foolish. To prove him wrong. There are two kinds of people in the world. Questions that come from a sincere heart and questions that come from an insincere heart. Now, in our text today that we just read, there are several questions that are being asked. Some think that Paul, after teaching what he has taught so far, he's anticipating what Jewish people might end up asking him. Now, remember, Paul has been saying that the Gentiles are guilty before God. And now he has also said the Jews are guilty before God. Both of them are guilty and need to be saved. And so maybe now he's anticipating what the Jewish audience might think about that. And he's asking the question that they're probably going to want to ask at some point. But I think Paul is not just anticipating questions. I believe he is asking the questions he's already heard from many Jewish people. Do you know that when Paul went on his mission trips and went preaching and teaching, every time he went into a new city, he found a synagogue first. He found the Jewish community first. As he said, the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentiles. And I'm sure that when Paul proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, 
Chapter 3 represents all the questions he has heard from so many Jews. And so now he's going to take a collection of those questions, put it all together for us, and begin to answer them. Now these verses that we just read, I will admit they're difficult to understand. Not just the questions that are being asked, but the answers that are given, they're very confusing, at least the first time you read it through. But you know, just because something is difficult in the Bible is never an excuse to skip over it or to ignore it. So today, we're going to try to make sense of the objections that the Jewish people have with what Paul is teaching about the gospel, and we're going to look closely at the answers Paul gives. And I pray that through this, God will speak to us as well. And as we look at this question and answer period, let it also be a moment for you to be thankful for people like Paul, who had to wrestle and contend with so many religious and philosophical objections to the gospel of Christ. He never ran away from these things. He never hid away. He never ignored them. He always faced the challenges people had against God. He faced them. He was faithful to God's word, and he answered them. We should be thankful for such people, and we should be ready to be such a person today. Because more than ever, the gospel is being attacked. What will we do in the day that we are challenged about our faith? Paul showed much patience. He also showed an uncompromising commitment to the truth of God's word. Amen. So with that, we're going to look at three categories of questions that are being asked. And these categories, they, they sort of revolve around three areas, three subjects. Number one, it concerns the blessing of God. Number two, there are questions that concern the faithfulness of God. And number three, there are questions that concern the gospel of God. God's blessing, His faithfulness, and His gospel. So let's begin with the first one, the blessing of God. Look once again at verse 1 and 2. Here is a question being asked. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Now the Jews have listened to Paul's explaining that both Jew and Gentile are guilty before God. Yes, that even the Jew, with his circumcision, needs to be changed inwardly, needs to be reborn, needs to be made right with God. Now, at this moment, the hand of a Jewish man goes up and says, uh, objection, objection. I thought, according to the Bible, the Jews were a blessed people. I thought the nation of Israel was a blessed nation. In fact, did God not say to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, that you will be a special treasure to me above all the other peoples of the world? What you've just said, Paul, is that there is, in fact, no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. So the question is, well then, what's the advantage of being a Jew? What then is the blessing of being a Jew? 
Paul says, much in every way. There is so much blessing and advantage for the Jewish people. Now Paul could have said, much in every way, just like when God faithfully called your father Abraham and was faithful to him, brought him into a new land and said, this will be the land that I will give to you. Like when God brought you out of Egypt when you were slaves under Pharaoh, yet God redeemed you and delivered you and brought you out. Yes, you are a blessed people. And what about when God brought you to the very land of Canaan and through his power you defeated the Canaanites, you took possession of the land and all your tribes were settled in the land that is Israel. Yes, the Jews, you are who you are because of God. You have a nation because of God. You are tremendously blessed. Paul says much in every way. And I could go on and on about all God's blessings. But chiefly, Paul says, chiefly, meaning above all blessings. Chiefly, above all, to them, the Jewish people, to them were committed the oracles of God. What are oracles of God? Do you know that Bible that you might have sitting in your lap? We don't usually call it the Bible in church, although we can, that makes perfect sense. We also call it the Word of God, don't we? Why is that? Because as a whole, yes, it is the Word of God, but if you read it, you are reading, I believe, the very words of God. Now, oracles or oracle of God means that God has spoken. His words have been made known. His divine, authoritative, powerful words have been made known. Those are the oracles of God. And Paul is saying that for the Jewish people, God committed to them, committed to them his very words. He spoke to them and he spoke through them. Now think of this for a moment. The fact that God has spoken. That means the world to us. It means everything to us. Can you imagine if God created the world and never spoke a word? We would be searching endlessly for joy, endlessly for peace, endlessly for satisfaction. We would be hopeless in our condition but God spoke. And when God spoke, He not only revealed Himself to us, He not only showed us that we are sinners in need of salvation, but in speaking, He showed us the way of salvation. Oh, what a glorious thing. What a wonderful blessing we have that God has spoken into the world. Because without it, we would be hopeless. We would not know what to do. And we would die in our sins. So think of these blessings. Number one, the oracles of God. Number one is the fact that he spoke his words. And there are prophets in Israel who heard the word of God and they wrote those things down. And now we have what's called a Bible in our hands. The oracles are the word of God. Do you know that in the very beginning of creation, on the sixth day, God created man. Male and female, he created them. And then it says that God blessed them and said to them. 
In other words, God wanted to bless his creatures, Adam and Eve. He wanted to bless them, make himself known to them, and to teach them. And so therefore, he spoke to them. And by speaking to them, he revealed himself. He told them what he expected of them. He taught them about his authority over them. And eventually, he spoke to them of the way of salvation. God has spoken. And I'm so thankful that he does. And I'm so thankful that in your lap are those very words. Paul says to the Jewish people, God used you and committed to you to be custodians of those words of God. Talk about a blessing in the world. Another part of the blessing is that very fact that he gave it to the Jews. That they were the ones who not only received it, they wrote about it, but they were the ones to teach all the world about what God has said. So what happened to them? Well, by the time Jesus came into the world, we find that the Jews are only Jews outwardly, just like Paul wrote about in chapter 2 of Romans. Only externally did they appear to be righteous, holy people. Only externally did they appear to be in a right relationship with God. They were Jews only outwardly. And you know that there was a time when Jesus spoke to them in the Gospel of John, and he said to them, you search the Scriptures. You read it. You memorize it. You can recite it even right now as I speak to you. It's on your lips and you can say it. You search the Scriptures. And in them, in the fact that you know what it says, you think you have salvation. And then he says, it's the Scriptures that speak of me. They testify of me. If the Jews really understood the Scriptures, they would have bowed down before Christ and worshipped Him as Messiah and Lord. Why didn't they? Because they didn't even recognize Him when He came. They did not understand the Scriptures. They knew it by way of memorizing it, but they didn't truly know what the Spirit of God was saying. In fact, in also the Gospel of John, He even said to the people that they don't even know the Father. They don't even understand the Father. If they did, they would have received Jesus with open arms. But they didn't because they never even understood the words God gave to them. The Jews were exceedingly blessed and they didn't even know it. I believe for us here today in church, I believe that we should seek to bless people by telling them the words of God. Whether you're on a plane somewhere or in a car with somebody, when you're visiting someone, whoever it is, we should always seek to bless the lives of people by telling them God's words. And I also think, especially for us here today, as parents, we need to make sure we are sharing the words of God with our children. Do you know, I used to think to myself, a long time ago, when I was just a young kid, I heard of many testimonies. People who would visit our church and give a testimony about how Jesus saved them. And I would hear people talk about their drug addictions, women coming out of prostitution, people who came out right out of prison 
People had done so many awful things in life, and yet Jesus saved them, delivered them, and created a new thing in them. And I used to think to myself when I was a kid, I wish I had that kind of testimony. I think that would be more exciting than what I really have. I mean, what do I say? I always grew up in church. I, my father has been a pastor my entire life. I used to be in church so much that I would fall asleep in the front seating area and my parents would leave and forget me. And they'd come back to the church later and I'm still sleeping in the chair. I was at church all the time. I don't even know what it was like to not be in church. I've always been around the Word of God, always, in home and in church. And I used to think, well, that sounds like a boring testimony. Why can't I say, I almost died, or I was a murderer, or I did this or that, and then the Lord saved me. That sounds more exciting. And then I grew up, and I became more thankful, and I learned to appreciate the fact that I've always grown up with the Word of God. I'm so glad that God didn't need me to get involved with such destructive sin in my life. I'm so glad that from an early age, my parents taught me the Bible. My youth pastor taught me the Bible. My Sunday school taught me. I was always surrounded by people teaching the Bible. And what a wonderful blessing that became to me. And I think we as parents need to bless our children by constantly reminding them about what God has said. Give them that advantage. Give them that blessing. Do you know, during the week, we get together on Wednesdays for prayer meeting, and there just seems to be a prayer that has been going up to God often. And it's this kind of prayer that for all of us that have children, whether they're learning about the Bible in church or at home or both, hopefully, or even in school, there's a prayer that keeps going up that these children, when they grow up, they will remember the words God has spoken. Wherever they go in life, whatever job they have, whatever they pursue, wherever they go, that they will remember what they were taught. Today, you and I have such a tremendous blessing to sit where we are and to hear the very words of God. That's a blessing. And we need to spread this word to our children, to the next generation. And we need to spread this word to our city and to our country. Amen. Where would we be if not for this blessing of God? That He would speak to us clearly and that he would reveal salvation to us. Today, let us be thankful. God has spoken, and we have heard his words. Amen? Number two, this next set of questions revolves around the topic of the faithfulness of God. Verse three and four. Okay, well, what if some did not believe the Jews? What if some of the Jews did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So here's the question. If there are Jews who have not believed 
in Jesus, the promised Messiah. Doesn't their unbelief, or as literally spoken, their unfaithfulness, doesn't their unfaithfulness to what God has said really mean that it's God who has failed? It's God who's unfaithful? I mean, God made these promises to Israel. And God spoke these things to them. If they don't believe in what God has said, then I guess God is not as faithful as we thought, Paul. I guess that if they fail to believe, it's really God's failure to save. It's God's failure to communicate clearly to them. To such a thought, Paul says, certainly not. Emphatically, he can't say it any more clearly. No, you are wrong. Don't ever think such a thing. There is no unfaithfulness with God. Quite the contrary. Throughout history, we have seen that God has been so faithful even amongst an unfaithful people. What would Paul be talking about? Like when God delivered Israel out of Egypt and he brought them through a fairly short journey through the wilderness. He brought them to the land of Canaan and said, here it is, just what I promised. Now go and take it. And you know what they did? Nothing. They took not one step in that land because they were scared. They were afraid and they doubted God's word. They doubted God's promises. And they turned around and went back into the wilderness. So for 40 long years, they wandered in the wilderness. Unfaithful, doubting God. And yet, for 40 years, faithful God. He fed them every day with manna that fell from heaven. When they desired meat, he had quail come so they could eat. When they were out of water, he showed them miraculously a place to get drink. He even made water come out of a rock for them. When they were sick with diseases, he healed them. God provided for them and gave them strength to wander for those 40 years. When the next generation came to Canaan and he said, now go and take it. It was God, God who defeated the armies that came against Israel so that they could inherit that land. But not too long after that, the people became unfaithful again and worshiped other gods and bowed down to idols. Trouble came, battles came, people died, yet God remained faithful and he would not allow his people to be completely obliterated from the face of the earth. Do you know that all throughout history, there have been so many dictatorships that have had one purpose in their political might. They want to obliterate Israel and kill every Jewish person on the earth. Whether we're talking about ancient days or you can even come even closer to the kingdom of the Greeks or even closer to Adolf Hitler or even closer to today, countries like Iran. They want to destroy every Jew on earth. And yet, for all these thousands of years, the faithful God has kept them and has saved them over and over and over again. God has been faithful, even when they were unfaithful. The promises of God, they are the most, most sure thing that we have in this life. 
Do you know that when God makes a promise, that promise is more certain than the sun rising tomorrow. You can be more sure about what God promises than you are with the sun rising tomorrow morning. Now, none of us ever even think about that. We just assume the sun will rise, and I wish we all assumed that when God made a promise, He keeps it, and we would stop worrying and doubting. Amen. So many times in Scripture, God will make a promise by saying, I will, I will, I will. And when God says, I will, He means what He says, and He does what He says He will do. There are times where God says, this is going to happen, and He says, and it shall be. Even thousands of years before the thing took place, God said, it shall be. And when God speaks in such a way, God speaks the truth, and He always does what He says. God never fails. And this comforts me every day. When I consider the faithfulness of God, I am so comforted every day. Do you know why? Because who among us has been perfectly faithful to God? Who among us? Who among us has trusted in God the way He deserves to be trusted in? Which one of us has been so faithful, perfectly faithful to God, never doubting, never worrying, never lacking faith? There's not a person on earth who has been perfectly faithful to God. We've all had times of doubting, of being afraid, and of worrying. All of us have. And yet, God is still faithful. Let me show you three verses that I love. Number one, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. And He cannot deny Himself. Paul wrote those words to Timothy. And also in this letter to Timothy, Paul also mentioned a, a man named Mark. Now Mark, who was a follower of Christ, who became a, a part of the group of the apostles, when they went on missionary journeys, Mark accompanied them. It was Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. That Mark. On Paul's first missionary journey, Mark went with him, as well as Barnabas. Mark went to be like a servant, to be a helper, to just help Paul and Barnabas in their ministry. But somewhere during that missionary journey, Mark deserted them. He went back on his word and he went home. There was something about that journey he wasn't comfortable with anymore, and he went home. He deserted Paul. When the time came for a second missionary journey, Barnabas said to Paul, let's take Mark with us. And Paul said, no way. No, he deserted us before. We can't risk this again. And so Paul and Barnabas separated ways. Barnabas took Mark along with him. That even though Mark was unfaithful to God, God never forgot about Mark. So Barnabas took him on a missionary journey. And you know, later in life, through what God did in Mark's life, because he never let go of Mark, eventually when Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy, he also says to Timothy in chapter 4, when you come, Please bring Mark with you as well. 
because he is a wonderful minister to me. Mark, the same guy who was without faith, the same guy who perhaps doubted or was afraid, the same guy who deserted his ministry, God never forgot and never gave up on Mark. And in the end, Mark became a wonderful believer and Christian. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. God was faithful, even if Mark was not faithful. Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, Paul says, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What God has started in you, he will complete it. And he's not finished with you until you see Jesus face to face. Then God will say, I'm done. The work is complete. Now what happens between the beginning and the completion? What do we have in between? The faithfulness of God. The third verse, I love this one. Titus 1 verse 2. Paul talks about the hope that we have of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Before time began, God had promised eternal life. That's amazing. Before time began, do you know that God could see you even before time began? God could look down through all the corridors of time and see all of you. He could see how many times you would sin against Him, how many times of doubt and unfaithfulness you would characterize in your own life. He would see how many times you would fall and fail and make mistakes and sin against His name. He saw all of that. And yet before time began, He declared, I will give them eternal life. Now what happened between before the beginning of time and right now? God is faithful. And when God promises, He does what He says. Praise the Lord. Paul says, let God be true when He speaks. And if anybody has anything to say against the truth of God, then that person is the liar. So let God be the one of truth and every man a liar. Kids, now I have your attention. It's good to see you. And then Paul quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 51. When David writes these words, speaking to God, he says, that you may be justified in your words, that when you speak, you hold to what you say, and may overcome when you are judged. Whoa, what was David talking about? Psalm 51 is about David remembering his great sin of adultery and murder, cheating, lying. And you know that even though God forgave David of all those things, and David took time in Psalm 51 to worship the Lord for his forgiveness, at the same time there were consequences. God had to chasten David for what he had done. There was punishment in it. The son that was born out of that adulterous relationship died. Now with what David just said to God, it kind of gives us the sense that perhaps David did not agree with what God had done. That maybe David thought this was unfair, that you should not have allowed my son to die like this, God. 
And it may be that when God did this, in David's heart there was a bit of judgment against God. But then David learned. And through it all, he learned to say, God, you are just in all that you say and in all that you do. And who am I to complain against you? God, when I judged you, you overcame because you are of the truth. You are faithful. You keep your promises. And because you're faithful to me, God, you will chasten me when I disobey. That's not because you don't love me. It's because you do love me and you care about me. Let me move along because the kids are getting antsy. <laughs> thank God. Thank God for the faithfulness that he has shown to us. Above all, that he gave us his only begotten son and has promised us if we put our trust in his son, we will have eternal life. Actually, let me say that better. If we trust in his son, we have eternal life right now. Praise God. Number three, the last one. The last set of questions revolve around the gospel of God. Again, here are some questions that the Jews have come up with. Now, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Paul says, I'm speaking as a man here. And then he says, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? Now, in looking at these last few verses, let me just make two points and try to explain what's being asked here. Do you know that when we sin, we are acting completely opposite of the character of God? The more we sin, the more it's revealed how wonderful God is. It's almost like if a star shines right now, all the sky is bright, and you might, might not notice how beautiful the star is. But when nighttime comes, and we see the darkness of space all around that star, it shines all the brighter. Or, think of this. If you have a diamond, you kids know what a diamond is? A little diamond on a ring? If you have a diamond and you look at it, is it beautiful? Absolutely. It looks wonderful right here. What if you took a piece of black paper and put the diamond on top of that paper? Now it looks even more beautiful because everything around it is dark and black. The Bible says that when Jesus came into our world, he was a light shining in the darkness. And the darker darkness gets, the brighter the glory of God becomes. So the Jews understand that, but they take it too far. And they say, well then, wait a minute. If we sin and it shines the glory of God more, then why not just keep on sinning, Paul? Why not keep acting unrighteously if it's only shining a light on the righteousness of God? What a weird question. What an awful thought. And then he says, is God unjust? And he adds that parenthesis, I speak as a man. Why did he do that? Because he's saying, far be it from me to ever suggest or to ever question the justice of God. But sinful man often asks that question. How can God be so unfair and so unjust? Now here's the first point I want to make to you. 
Oftentimes when you read the Bible, you'll come to a place probably and you may not agree with what God says. And you might think, well, I don't think, God, you should have said that. Or, or God, if you do that, I, I don't think you should have done that, God. When you see those kinds of verses or come to that kind of place in the Bible, you have to make sure, first of all, that you don't dishonor God by judging Him as unjust, unfair, unloving, unkind. When you try to understand a difficult passage in the Bible, the first thing you need to do is start with truth. So if I'm going to read something about what God said to somebody and He punished them and I think, wow, God, I, I don't know if you should have done that. I must first start with truth. Truth is that God is righteous and holy and perfect and everything He does is good. Therefore, if my thoughts are, God, you did something that's not good, I am wrong. If I start with something that is false, I'm going to end up with a false conclusion. So every time you read the scriptures, if there's something there that you don't, that you don't like, don't even come close. I had somebody say to me one time, texted me, and said, Pastor, I just read this parable by Jesus. This is a believer. Texted me and said, I read this parable by Jesus, but... Wow, he's really unjust, isn't he? And I said, oh, believer, you should not say such things. You can't begin by thinking, well, because I don't like it, that must mean Jesus is wrong and unjust. Don't do that. First begin with God is good and he's always just. Therefore, if you disagree, you're wrong and not him. May it be far from us to judge God as unjust. The second point, and again, this concerns the gospel, comes in the last two verses, seven and eight. This is the last part. Again, going forward with what was just said. Now it's for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? In other words, when a sinner sins, and that sin just demonstrates how wonderful and glorious God is, well then, again, why not keep sinning? Give glory to God. Wonderful. Isn't that what you're saying, Paul? Why not say, they also ask, let us do evil. Because if in the end we believe that God gets all the glory for everything, well then good, he'll get glory out of my sin. Isn't that what you're saying, Paul? That it's okay to sin because God will get glory out of it anyway? What are they saying? They're saying this. Paul, what you're really saying is that since a believer's sin is in stark contrast with God's holiness and glory, and therefore when a believer sins, he's glorifying God, then we should just keep on sinning. Go ahead, Paul. Preach the gospel. Say what you really mean. That all you have to do is believe in Jesus and then do whatever you want after that. Live however you want. Do evil. Sin. Doesn't matter. Just become a Christian like Paul says and then you can continue living in your evil ways. Don't worry because in the end God will get the glory. Paul 
Paul says they speak slander against me. They accuse me of teaching that once you believe in Jesus, you don't have to worry about sin. You don't have to worry about repentance and confession. Become a Christian and then continue on your normal life. No problem. That's what they thought Paul was teaching about the gospel. And Paul was saying they lie about me and their condemnation, their judgment is just. God will judge such thoughts. Do you know, just for a moment, and I'm done here just in, in a minute, there are people in the world that do believe. Just say, I believe in Jesus, and then go back to your life. What do you think? Is that what the gospel is? Did not Paul already say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? For it is what? The power of God to salvation for all that believe. This is the second point I want to make. The gospel of God is power. Power. Power to change a person's life. It's the power of God to take someone from death to life. Now let me ask you this. Is there any difference between a dead man and a living man? Of course there is. Many differences. In the same way, this is what the gospel does. This is the power of the gospel, that it brings a man from death to life, and that it changes a man's heart. It changes a man's mind. It changes a man's actions. Why? Because the Spirit of God now lives in you. He gives you a new birth. He stirs in your heart to walk with God and to live in His Word, to obey His Word, and to honor Him. That's the gospel. Nobody here is teaching just believe in Jesus and then go and do whatever sin you want. That's disturbing. And if anybody thinks such a thing, you don't know what the gospel is. You've never heard the truth of the gospel. Are you changed by God? That's the question. There should be a difference from the time you met Jesus until today. And there should be a difference from what you are now to what you shall be. There is a growing process walking with the Lord and it's a lifelong changing God does in you. God loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you where he found you. He says, come, take up your cross now and follow me. It's time for change. Musicians, We're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. Let me just close today's message with this. Thank God. Thank God for the blessing we have received because we have the very words of God. Thank God that He has spoken and we know what He has said. Thank God that He is faithful even in our unfaithfulness and in times of doubting, praise God who keeps his good hand upon us and continues to lead us on. There's nothing like the faithfulness of God. And thank God that he's changing our lives, that we're not who we used to be. We're growing. We're changing. We experience victory after victory over the sins of life.
Thank God for bringing us from death to life. Now today you might be confused by the questions, confused by the answers, and maybe I even taught it in a confused way. Just leave here with this. Thank you, God, for blessing me. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God. You are changing my life. The gospel, indeed, is the very power of God. Amen. Can we stand together? And let's prepare our hearts for communion as we sing this song together.